Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to TV Show and Tell, the podcast that tickles the underbelly of the TV industry. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a games consultant and TV producer from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in this episode, we'll be talking about TV graphics with our special guest, Chris Goss. We'll also look at homegrown flops that become international hits. And we'll ask, what are the hidden rules that decide how long a program should be? But first, let's go to Justin for the news. Well, if you remember during my recent report from MIP TV in the spring, I mentioned a show called Next Level Chef, mm -hmm. uh, which has now been optioned by ITV um, with a broadcast date for some time next year. So to remind you, it's a chef competition. The twist is that you've got three kitchens stacked on top of each other, 50 foot high, linked by a dumb waiter of ingredients that goes up and down between the kitchens. And the top kitchen is state of the art. The middle kitchen is kind of smart amateur. And the bottom is the kitchen from hell. Hell's kitchen. There's an idea. So with the recent return of the, to me, very dull cooking with the stars, um, ITV looked to be reclaiming some of the food space that's currently occupied by the BBC, I think. It's easier to do now than before, but I always seem to remember that shows involve height were particularly tricky because studios were never that high. <laughs> well, studios are still not that high. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that someone's built a hub for this somewhere. So something like The Wall, for example, uh, doesn't fit into a lot of studios. So they've built a version of it in France, and that's where a lot of people go to shoot their shows. Because generally speaking, in most studios, the, the clearance is about 30 foot before you hit the lighting rig. And also, it's not just the clearance, is it? But it's also like, if you want to get like a low camera angle, then if you're... You start low and you're filming somebody's face, you will start to see spotlights and things. Yeah, yeah, it's what <laughs> that's right, it's what we call shoot off. So, shoot off is when you can see, as you say, above the set because you're shooting from a lower angle. But I can only assume with this, I mean, if they're shooting the middle and upper kitchens, obviously they must have cameras up on those levels. I can only assume, but... I think what's probably happened is somebody's looked at MasterChef on BBC One and University Challenge at BBC Two and gone, how can we combine these two things? <laughs> yeah, well, it'd probably be a lot cheaper just to put them all on the ground and do a do a split, uh, split screen. In the US, the USA Network has commissioned a show called Snake in the Grass. Uh -huh. So what they've done is they've taken reality show veterans and put them together to play challenges. However, one of the contestants is somebody who is there to effectively get in the way and sabotage the progress of the others. So in other words, it's a bit like the mole. <laughs> in other words, it's a bit like rat in the kitchen. So now <laughs> snake in the grass is the further idiom-based format around this sort of idea and traitors um, yes well yes that's about to come around as well oh, yeah. and that seems to have been commissioned in a few territories we've got yeah. one coming here in 
Britain. I believe there's an American one yep. shot. And then the original was Belgian, was it? I think it was Dutch. I'm not sure why people are not just bringing out the mole. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I've seen come out recently on Amazon Prime was a romance show called The One That Got Away. So you've got six singles searching for love, same old, same old. Unlike other reality dating shows, the contestants get to explore missed connections because people from their past step through the time portal in front of them, one at a time. Yeah, they see them and they think, oh, maybe this is somebody that I could have gone out with in the past. Maybe this is the one that got away and maybe we should date now. So each one of these people who comes through the portal is a surprise. So it might be an old flame, for example, or it might be a friend who secretly fancied them and they never knew. Or it might be somebody they they ought to remember, but actually don't, which is kind of awkward. <laughs> and it's really trashy. And I have to say, it is a lot of fun. And as a format, it's got this kind of conveyor belt of reveals whenever, whenever the story gets boring. Right. It could get very, very, very awkward. It's like, auntie, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it, that's the thing. They don't know who's going to come through the time portal. We don't know who's going to come through the time portal. And obviously, because they come one at a time, you know, they sort of have to decide whether to stick or spin as well, which is quite funny. Well, somebody who's going to get their Christmas bonus this year is Claudia Wilkerman's agent, because I've just remembered that she's hosting the British version of The Traitors. And this week she has been hosting a new Channel 4 quiz show called One Question. And it's quite a neat idea. So you start with very simple questions, such as what is a circle or what is a potato? And you think, oh, that's easy. And then up come 20 answers. So it might be this is the logo for Chanel. So you have to sort of go, well, does that fit the basic question? And 19 of these things don't fit it, and you can start eliminating them um, every so often. And then there's the usual thing of, well, after you've deleted so many of them, we'll start to give you helps in return for reducing the prize money. So the prize money starts at 100,000. And then you can start to do deals with host and say well can you give us some help by knocking out if we pick three can we can you knock out two of them for us and, and things like that uh, or can you give us clues to help us further with a particular question i think for most quiz people who are watching this they'd be looking at and going this is the easiest ride ever because they would probably be able to narrow it down to two or three answers mm. and then they'd use a couple of clues for ten thousand pounds each or something so i think most people who would be any decent quiz player would be looking to walk away yeah. with more than half the money easily it's it's an okay show i think the main comment that people have said about it is if you know the answer and they have written the questions in such a way that you kind of can sometimes know the answer mm. outright mm. it's a bit tedious waiting for half an hour waiting for them to catch up with you and is it definitely one question per episode or does it roll over thankfully they have done it in such a way that it's rollover or it's at least cut in such a way that potentially you feel like it could be a rollover. But if somebody did go for the, the answer very quickly, that they would then roll over with some new contestants. Yeah, it's it was not like that other show, the one and six zeros, where they stretched the game to fill the hour. Mm. And in fact, we'll be talking more about stretching and squeezing to fit particular time slots later in the show. 
I've got one other show to mention, which is on Roku. Is that how you pronounce it? Roku or Roku? I thought it was Rock You, but I've never rock actually... You. Oh, really? I, I, you know, because, like, you know, we're going to rock you with this television. <laughs> yeah. So. Gosh, it's never occurred to me. Rock You. Oh, God, I've been saying it wrong for, for it, months. It probably months. is Roku. I've just, I've just never, <laughs> ever heard anybody with any authority tell me what it is. Okay, well, that streamer um, has commissioned a reality competition from a production company called Caravan in the UK. It's called Survival from Above. So this is a survival reality show where contestants spend their entire time 100 feet above ground. How come? Well, they are in the rainforest of Guyana in South America. And basically at the start, the contestants are given climbing equipment and survival tools, and they get a chance to scavenge for supplies from the forest floor. Then up the trees they go, and basically they've got to stay there and outlast their competitors. So who's going to take part? Well, they had a look at the casting call. It says they're looking for rock climbers and ice climbers and climbing instructors, as well as botanists and arborists. So if you're a <laughs> budding arborist out there, this is the show for you. Just, I'm not sure in a Venn diagram of rock climbers and botanists. Maybe, maybe botanists do have to climb rocks. But anyway, the thing I found a little bit depressing was that the subheading in the casting call was just think what it could do for your Insta following. Oh, Really? Yeah, really. Okay. So that was a little bit depressing for something that's sort of all about survival reality. Anyway, so that's coming up at some point on Roku, Roku, Rocco, whatever it's called, uh, called Survival from Above. Right. News just in. It is Roku, oh, uh, which is the Japanese word for six. And it's because it was the sixth company that Anthony Wood started. All right, excellent. Well, I do hope you called it Rock You in a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when I was growing up, one credit that kept popping up regularly on the TV shows I watched was computer graphics Chris Goss. Well, I'm pleased to say that Chris kindly came on to talk about his work in the industry, and we began with his time on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Our guest today is a veteran of the industry who has created the game control technology for game shows and entertainment formats all over the world. He is Chris Goss. Welcome, Chris, to TV Show and Tell. Hi, Justin and David. Chris has worked on technology solutions for shows such as Millionaire, Deal or No Deal, The Weakest Link, The Chase, One Versus A Hundred, Five Gold Rings, Million Pound Drop, The Power of Ten, Million Dollar Password, and many more. And he's also helped to roll out these shows to territories all around the world. For instance, I believe you've worked on Millionaire in around 60 territories, Chris. We came off the first series and it was almost immediately starting to roll out in other countries. Yeah, we put it into, I think, to my knowledge, about 60 countries. And it's gone into a lot more since then, actually, with different teams of people. Let's go back before those 60 territories, back to the the, the scramble and madness of, of getting Millionaire into its first iteration. From a game control point of view, I mean, obviously, you were building the technology to make this game work. So what were the challenges of that? I think the secret to all of these is to have the the control. It's not just an automatic operation. You've got to go and you've got to sense what's happening. So 
you know, you're bringing drama in, you're working off cues. So you've got to have a system that is simple to operate for an operator that allows you to, to follow the director. You can't be having to press loads of buttons and the timing's out and it all has to be tightened in the edit. It's, you're recording like it's a live show and you're trying to avoid having to stop to do anything like that. So you've got to have the ability to fire things on a cue. So everything's tied in together. So you're, you're not just generating the graphics to cue, you're also triggering the lighting effects at the right time, the sound effects at the right time. You're putting the information that the host needs. You're putting the information up that production needs. So a millionaire, the host never knows the answer because otherwise, you know, there are tales that people know. And you're queuing up things at exactly the right time. And I think that the challenge there is, is not just the technology because actually it's hardware and programming. It's, it's having the ability to follow the story in precise time. You're following the director. You've got to be able to take that. In effect, the director can't be constrained by the technology. And when you have all of these different cultures arriving and say, we want to buy a millionaire, how did you have to adapt your systems so that it would work with their, with their cultures? You know, you've got the problems of Arabic script with, you know, European language in it where you go left to right and then right to left and left to, you know, and it's, you know, once you've worked, once you've worked it out once, then that's fine. And then, so, so really all, all the packages we make or I've made cater for international rollout. So my experience of hosts is that they always want to know the answer to yeah. questions. Have there been examples in in other countries where the host has put pressure on the production to to know the answers? Our package doesn't give the answers, right. and we never and we said, you know, what this is what you get. We're not adding because we're working to Celador, and Celador is insistent that the package remains constant. So, and as you say, other shows they want to see all the information, but I think actually. It's a, it's a detriment to the show. You know, sometimes it's not it's not relevant. And then, you know, if, if the host knows the answers, then the danger always is that he'll give it away, you know. Sitting in the dark in, in, in studios all around the world. What's your, what's your favourite war stories from Millionaire, Chris? Well I'll, t- well, I'll tell you a funny story about Millionaire, actually, which is, which is not so much on the set, but it's like the day we finished Millionaire, obviously we'd been ensconced in the studio for, for, you know, a week or two weeks. So we didn't really... We weren't really aware of the kind of furore that was happening outside. About we, Paul Smith would bring in the ratings, and they were going up every day and stuff like that. So, so we had a big party, and then the next day I was due to go to Holland to Endemol to show them to demo the system. So, you know, we all got to bed very late. I woke up late. I missed my first plane. I booked another plane. I went out to the airport. I got to Schiphol. They sent a car. I get in the car and I'm going, right, now, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, right, so I'm going to demo the computer system. And I went, oh, computer system. <laughs> and I'd completely forgotten that I'd brought the computer with me. And I went, stop, stop, that we had to go back to Schiphol. And <laughs> luckily, this is pre-9-11. I had to blag my way back into the into the baggage. Oh, no. <laughs> and then the computer going round on the carousel. So I pick up the computer, fly to Endemol, who obviously, you know, so I demo the show and they go fantastic and, you know, they all mm. take it. But I thought, oh, Lord. Let's talk about Five Gold Rings. Yeah. So this is an ITV show where all the questions are projected onto the floor of the set. Complex show. So how were you involved in that? We were brought in, I think, to do the second series. I think the first series was recorded in Holland and I think they had lots of technical problems. So the technology drives the floor drives all the graphics on the floor it drives all the contestant podiums and so on but it also controls the rings 
So it's quite a complex show. And it's one of these things where, you know, it kind of works and people kind of take it for granted. But actually, we use very clever technology to use we use a camera to detect the rings on the floor. So I designed these rings. They're all wirelessly controlled. They can be any color. They can You can control them on and off, dim them, flash them, do whatever you like. Okay. So as you say, a, a successive number of, you know, five rings getting smaller and smaller. They're placed on the floor. And then we have a system above that takes the takes the camera image, detects the ring within it, works out the absolute position, and then determines whether any of the answer is within the area of the ring. And it's pixel accurate. It's really, really, really accurate. And it's and it's really complex. We've got half a day of calibration really setting it up. Our camera's got to be on an independent truss up in the lighting rig that mustn't move. But we've turned up in places and they've gone, oh, we put, the, we put your camera up for you. And then we look at it and it's now tied. There's another camera on the same truss. So when they rotate their camera, our camera then moves with it. And like, <laughs> so we have to go up, take it all down again, put it back up again, and then spend another half a day recalibrating it all. We did it in, in Saudi, in Riyadh. So we're in studio one day and we're coming up to lunchtime and suddenly we lose all control of the rings. Right, can't get them to turn on, can't get them to turn off, and it's almost lunchtime. So they said, "Right, we'll just call lunch," and then it suddenly all comes good. I think, well, that's very odd. So I go wandering around the studio complex, and I notice someone coming out of a door, and they're kind of dressed in a kind of like a model kind of outfit. And I thought, oh, so I go in, and there's a commercial crew filming an advert, and they've got wireless cameras. And some and some other wireless technology, and I go and I wander around, and I can see a bit of equipment with a load of stub aerials out of it. So I go, you're using wireless technology on this, aren't you? And I go, yeah. So what kind of bandwidth, you know? And then comes down to the fact that all their signals are so strong, they're just swamping all our (laughs) ring signals in the studio next door, and no one had any idea that there was another crew in there. So we solved that problem. But it's the kind of things where you know something happens, you've got no idea what it is. And, you know, and you've not got the luxury of, oh, well, we'll come back tomorrow and fix this. You've got you know, an hour. Really, the best technology is, is almost the technology that you can't see happening. I mean, like, are there any other examples when there's actually a surprising piece of tech behind the scenes that to us seems effortless? There's a show called The Edge where they're rolling balls down a long LED floor and, yep. and it's lighting up behind the ball. And again, it looks fairly effortless. And then, so the, the challenge there was how do we how do we get that? How do we track that ball? So, I designed an infrared laser system that sits at the end of the track and scans across the floor, detects the ball. But in fact, it just it's because it's laser, it just detects the front curve of the ball. And then from that, you work out where the center of the ball is, and then you feed that back into the graphic system to say light this element. So again, it looks, you know, you look, oh, yeah, that seems logical. You roll a ball and it lights up underneath it. But no one thinks, well, how does that work, actually? And it's so, and, and we, were in a, we were in a studio doing it and long calibration. You've got to get it exactly right and you've got to calibrate all the points. And we came back one day and someone stole the laser. And, <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like, someone had gone, oh, that's a 5,000 pound bit of equipment. I'll have that. And so we came back, no laser. So we had to, you know, obviously we've got to back up, set the backup up, recalibrate it. But from that point, we had to 
we had to we had to take it out every night and lock it away and then come back in earlier recalibrate it set it up i mean i've never had that happen actually i've never had that happen ever except in this one instance well and it's cru absolutely crucial to the to the show another show is money drop so a money drop as they're moving the money around on the trap doors what we did was we put in load cells so we weigh the money so right. each of the trap doors is like a is like a weighing scale. So we know how much bundle of money weighs. And so we just calculate the value of the money. Right. So you're not relying on the visual. Exactly. And you want a continuous update as they move bundles around. Each of the monitors in front of each of the trapdoors rolls the money up and down as they move it. It's very clever. And then we just cater for the different currencies. So all we do is at the beginning of a production in a different country, we just weigh their million dollars, their million pounds, their million pesos. And then, and from that, we then work out the weight of a bundle. And there's obviously a bit of variation, but we've got enough. You know, it's it's you know maybe five percent or ten percent, but the system caters for it and works out if there's too much of a percentage difference, it'll it'll work out what it is. Because it must be on a show like that where you have a million pounds, a million dollars. There must be a great deal of security around that as well. Is that something you get involved with? Certainly, on million pound drop, there was a million pounds on the set. Early on, there was a different technology used that we inherited where there were tags in the bundles. So myself and one of, one of my colleagues were locked in a cage with security around us with a million pounds, going putting something in each bundle, right? And we're thinking, oh. So initially you go, oh, a million pounds. But by the end of it, you're going, oh, Lord. <laughs> you know, a lot of bundles of money. But, but yeah, so very tight security. And I mean, you know, guards on the security on the stage all the time. You know, and security also applies to, to questions, to question stacks, certainly like on Millionaire. You know, we've got all the questions on one of the computers, but, you know, everything's locked. The computers are locked when you leave. The rooms are locked because, you know, there's a lot of money at stake. Mm. So in our next segment, we're going to be looking at the world of formats internationally. And in particular, it's been inspired by Iron Chef. So what's going on there, Justin? Iron Chef is being rebooted by Netflix. If you remember Iron Chef, it's the sort of daddy of cooking reality competitions, I guess. You had guest chefs who took on a top or iron chef to produce a range of dishes in 60 minutes using a secret ingredient. So, as I said, Netflix is rebooting it. I think it's already in the top 10 of some country or other. But what I was surprised to discover was that Iron Chef was originally a Japanese format. I'm actually quite familiar through my work with how shows are born in one country and flourish in another. But I hadn't realized. I thought Iron Chef was extremely American. So I was a bit surprised to realize its Japanese origins. And that just led me to reflect really on how many shows we're familiar with in the UK, even shows we embrace as our own that originated elsewhere. So, for example, Blockbusters and University Challenge and The Apprentice are all based on originals from what country? Well, I know Blockbusters are definitely American. So. Yeah, they're all, they're all American, actually. Countdown, Treasure Hunt and The Crystal Maze all originated in France. Dragon's Den and Hole in the Wall are also Japanese. And I was also a bit surprised when I dug into this to see that Take Me Out, which I thought was American, actually, but is actually Australian in its original form. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because 
not only are they from perhaps surprising places, but there is an element to which they did better in their international version than they did in their home territory. So you mentioned blockbusters. The original version of blockbusters was a very sort of average American show that I think only lasted maybe four or five years, if, if that, in America, whereas in Britain it had a life of about 20 it was so popular in Dubai that the shops used to shut early. <laughs> um, and like another one that uh, really, really is quite strange is uh, the the format "Touch the Truck." Oh yeah, we had with Dale Winton. Oh, well, that has uh, had ten series in Azerbaijan. <laughs> Can you imagine that? It's yeah. like the ten series of people oh. putting their hands on a on a truck well i have a friend uh, i have a friend who works for cheska televis which is the national broadcaster for chechia and on that channel um, like quite a lot of uh, middle european countries the news is at seven o'clock so the slot between six and seven is a very popular slot to compete for and it's filled up with a lot of numbers and word games and in that country there had been was and still is a very long-running very, very simple word game that they were finding it very, very hard to compete with. They tried all sorts of, you know, counter scheduling with reality shows, with dating shows, with, you know, documentary, nothing worked. So they went to the markets in Cannes and they said, they went round the distributors and they said, we want your most boring, boring game show. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, the, the sales team looked at them and said, sorry, what? He said, seriously, this slot has got to have the simplest, most dull, boring thing in the world in it. You know, we're talking about page 139 of your back catalogue. <laughs> so I won't reveal which show they bought, but they did eventually buy a show for a very, very small amount of money since it had only been played, I think, once on one channel in one country once. <laughs> Put it out and it did exactly what it said on the tin. It was simple, it was dull, it filled the hour, and it competed beautifully uh, with the competition. So it's a good example of something, you know, not working, not only in its original country, but anywhere else, but fitting that slot perfectly. There was If I Ruled the World, which was like a panel game where comedians sort of pretended to be members of parliament. Oh, yeah. And the audience would vote about who did vote in every so often. And remember who who devised that show? No. It was actually Richard Osman. Oh, right. Well, that show has been going on Swedish television as a show called Parliamentet for over 20 years. A couple of seasons here. It's it's done 10 times that in, in Sweden. Well, I think we mentioned in a previous episode, Altogether Now, karaoke-type talent show where you've got to get 100 judges to stand up and sing along with you while you're singing. And it lasted a couple of seasons on the BBC, but didn't do particularly well. Um, and I thought that was the end of it, but it has actually been picked up in a number of other countries and done well, um, particularly in Europe. And as I think we said at the time, you know, that there's much more of a tradition in Europe of these kind of music music game shows that don't really go anywhere. I think our problem was that we were billing it as a talent show, as a, as a way for someone to demonstrate their talent and win a recording contract. Whereas what it is, it's a mass sing-along show. Um, and that played much better into these slots evening slots on television in different european countries where people are quite used to seeing some singers 
you know, and a piano and a house band just mucking about for an hour or two. So it worked really well outside of this country. So I think the two lessons out of this are, number one, if you come up with a show, you've got to get a local production before you can take it out to the international markets. You know, the first thing that a buyer will say to you is, okay, what's the show? And the second will be, how did it do in your country? But having said that, and whilst it is enormously helpful if it's been a huge hit in your own country, it is possible for your show to have a life beyond a failure in your own country. So if you've managed to hang on to that IP, then you can benefit from your show having another life. And and it can be quite strange if you go to another country where your show is a big hit and you're a bit of a celebrity, and yet (laughs) in your own country... I guess it's all about, you know, you can't be a prophet in your own country. Now it's time to go back to our interview with computer graphics expert, Chris Goss. So as well as the sort of technology behind running the, the format side of things, there's also things, especially in more modern formats, where the audience gets involved, either the audience in the studio or your audience at home what are the main difficulties you find if if you're trying to get people's opinions to influence the the format of a show i mean there are different technologies and and they depend a bit on on the requirements a millionaire had obviously the voting for the audience and we put out voting pads which were very simple just you know four buttons a b c d and that's a fairly self-contained fairly simple system but as as requirements become more sophisticated then the technology becomes more sophisticated so you tend to want to go to tablets or smartphones because partly from production values, you want a graphical look to it. So you can have an over-the-camera shot of a, you know, of a nice tablet with a choice. So you look at Mask Singer. We've done that in done that in France, where you've got you see pictures of the act. Then what you've got to look at is what's what's the the environment like? Because if you've got a hundred or two hundred people in the audience, you've got you know, a lot of Wi-Fi people will have their phones. There'll be, you know, there's studio networks. And that, this is what you've got to look at. You've got to look at, you know, the latency of getting questions back, the reliability. Um, you don't want to have dead spots where part of the audience vote, but nothing happens. Because you've got to have reliability. You can't have people complaining, well, I voted, but, it, you know, it never responded. And, you know, the show is the most important thing. And the technology has to support the show, not the show support the technology. And what kind of lead time is there? So if there's like a question or a vote that goes out, and then people vote on that app, and then that feeds back to you, like what sort of delays are in the system? Coming from, from voting apps, actually, the latency isn't that bad. It's more, the latency is more to do with, with video signal you're receiving. If I'm sitting at home, watching a show what's important there is am i watching it on a terrestrial broadcast am i watching it through a set-top box am i watching it somewhere else so you've got to look at the latency there whereas the the ip coming from the smartphone is fairly consistently rapid it's it's fast so what you have to do there sometimes is have a synchronization between the video signal and your smartphone app There's an audio watermarking technology that sends a signal out on the broadcast signal that you can't hear, but the app can hear. So that signal may trigger a display on your smartphone that's synchronized with what you see on your television. So whether you're watching it terrestrially or via a set-top box, you have the same experience. There may be six seconds delays between those two 
ways of watching, but from your point of view as a viewer, it's synchronous. And then the results come back in, and normally you allow a bit of time to gather the results. Again, because of the latency. If someone's six, seeing something six seconds later, you need to cater for that. What do you think hasn't been done with interactivity that uh, you think, oh, why doesn't somebody make a game show with, with that in it? Um, because there's a really a cool piece of kit or a cool piece of interactivity that we haven't seen before. We've certainly seen kind of over the COVID period where it was harder to bring people into a studio. I think interactivity came up, was more pronounced. So you saw it actually on Anton Deck Saturday Night Takeaway with a massive wall of people at home. Mm. Uh, and that was, you know, quite quite complex technology there to to synchronize everything to cater for latency to look at the audio and video feeds you can then expand that so that actually people can have a physical interaction though playing at a distance and i think that's more interesting you know can they have buzzers can they have other other ways of interacting with a show and i think it, it would be quite nice to see and certainly i've had some ideas that i've certainly talked about with people about Putting people kind of like in a pod that makes them look like they're on the set, but actually they're not on the set, they're at home. Um, and then then what comes in into there is that you can have a quite interesting gameplay in that it looks like people are there, but the people, you can restrict the knowledge that the different contestants have. Because they're not all there, you can say something to one person that you can't say to another person. Right. But they're virtually there, but they have a physical that they have a physical presence through a screen and through audio and video. Is this the sort of similar kind of technology we've seen on things like Eurosport and whatever, where they're, where they're interviewing like a tennis player just after a match and they appear to beam that person into the studio? I actually know a little bit about the Eurosport one because um, what they do is that they project the the thing that's beamed in onto the back of an led box that the presenter is in and, it, and they match that with the perspective of the camera in such a way that it perspective does make it look like the person is just standing there so you don't have to look at a screen off the set you can actually just look at the back wall yeah and it might it might look like the person's a bit sort of like a zigzaggy but from the camera's perspective it, it actually looks like a, a perfectly ordinary human being standing right yeah. there so it, it is quite clever but it it is it is an interesting thing this whole world of extended sets and and yes and making things look bigger than they really are because this is that they are just in a small LED box but there's like extensions that are built around it which are purely virtual and then uh, do you do you get involved with with all that sort of thing as well i do i've just been doing some work we were looking at a thing that's called xr so there's vr which is green screen and virtual and and so all you've got are the participants and the backgrounds are all laid over green screen so you on the set you don't see it you only see it through the camera there's ar which is elements keyed over a set again you don't see those if you're on the set you only see them through the camera but there's a technology called xr which i think is very interesting actually which is it's three sides of an led cube it's the floor and two walls so your backgrounds are on the led your participants are on the set on the so that set can be anything it can be you know the floor can be a floor but it could be it could be anything the backgrounds can be whatever you like but What's really interesting is as the camera pans round, it then extends the set beyond the LED walls. So you've got all the advantages of having a real set there that you can interact with because it does exist. 
but you've opened up the whole area by using VR beyond the bounds of the actual LED walls. So you've now got a 360-degree set, in effect. Mm. You, you can't put the people in front of the extended set, but you can pan around that set, if that makes sense. I guess if we circle all the way back to where we started with, with Millionaire, yep. and you, you, know, you talked very much about the drama in the, in yep. the studio and how the actual set and the actual lighting and the actual music mm. and everything being cued in live yep. created that atmosphere that projected through the screen into people's living rooms. And I suppose the fear with virtual sets is that you just can't do that. Even with an LED screen, you're not in an environment that conveys that sense of live drama to the people who are taking part and whose reactions we're taking our cue from as viewers. I think I think that's very true. I think, you know, it's not just the main players, is it? It's also your audience. It's also what's around there. And that and that is the problem with the with the VR and the XR is that you're not including the audience within that. You can mix them. So you can have an audience, you can have an XR stage that's a physical presence there with backgrounds. From a camera point of view, you can then film off the set and still have part of the set there in a virtual manner that the audience won't see so you're you're extending depends what you're trying to achieve really but i don't think anything or it's hard to better a real set with audience with because you know you've got the whole feeling there you've got the participation you see it in millionaire don't you you've got the darkness you can see the people around you can see their faces within the darkened set and they all add to that tension when it's when there's no audience it's a different. It's a different feeling. Sure, um, but more and more shows are made with without audience. Actually, do you think people's expectations of what they're looking at has gone up because of the way that they're playing more computer games and see more Hollywood films and sort of television's kind of had to catch up with that? I think people expect kind of a better quality of of graphic, as it were. You've got to add in more bells and whistles into what you're presenting. Because in the in the early days, were you just basically using souped up versions of home computers and things like that? Absolutely. So certainly, when I started, I think I started using Amigas, which were you know home <laughs> computer. You know, luckily things have got more sophisticated, and now they're really powerful machines rendering things in real time in three D. And again, and again, not just fed to an LED wall, but also generating AR or, or VR elements as as required, and it's very powerful. I look at you know one percent. Looks fantastic. I mean, great graphics, great look and, and, and feel to it. The production values get better and better, I think, all the time. Well, Chris, thanks very much indeed for joining us. You're going to come back to do show and tell segment later on. But for now, Chris Goss, thanks very much indeed. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. So, Justin, it's funny what claims to fame your friends have sometimes. So one of my friends revealed this week that she was one of the voices on Points of View. Oh, really? All right. Points of View is this um, long-running BBC feedback show where viewers can write in and say what they like or dislike, usually dislike, about the programmes that they're watching. And uh, she was one of the voices that read out some of the, the <laughs> letters this week. Anyway, one of the shows that they were talking about on this week's episode was This Is My House. And people were saying that this series, they've cut down the running length 
from 60 minutes to 30 minutes. And by and large, people didn't like it. This is my house, just to fill people in. Is a, It's basically like a puzzle show where you get to snoop around house. There are various people saying that this is my house and you have to work out who the real person is that lives in that house. And there are celebrities that are trying to guess along at the same time. All the viewers were saying that they felt that the shorter running time was a big detriment because there was not enough time for you to kind of ingest the clues and see enough of the house to make any sort of informed decision. Mm. On that topic, there's a, there's a whole range of stuff to talk about in terms of shows getting shorter, shows getting longer. I would say slot lengths have got longer over the last sort of 10 years or so. So historically, slot lengths have tended to be half an hour or one hour in the UK, that is. And obviously on commercial television, you're then factoring in ad breaks as well. So one critical thing that's happened is that ad breaks have got longer and we've got more of them and we you know everyone's seen that so something that was a few years ago you know 27 28 minutes in a half an hour is now only 3 24 minutes in a half hour um, i work quite a lot in canada as you know uh, commercial half hour is only 22 minutes 30 there are four commercial breaks so there are five acts within that half an hour mm. and each of those acts has got to end with some kind of cliffhanger which means the canadians have developed a lot of ways to speed up storytelling what that also means is that when you bring back an old format from the past and reboot it you do have a bit of a problem because shows that used to run quite comfortably within a commercial half hour no longer do mm. So you see a lot of shows that were originally half hour getting extended to an hour because they've now going to run at about 42, 43 minutes in a commercial slot. And sometimes that's very difficult to do because, you know, the reason why you're rebooting the show is because it's a perfectly well-crafted show that's got a long track record at working in that way. And now you've got to extend it. <laughs> and in a world where we actually want to speed up storytelling that can make things really drag a good example of that was celebrity squares which came back a few years ago very briefly on itv oh yes remember that and you know they had precisely this problem was that it had been a half hour show now now it was a one hour show with a lot of commercial breaks in it they added some rounds to pad it out and you know, the thing about Celebrity Squares is it's a very, very, very silly game. It, it's a pretty ropey format that only just was clinging on to its running time exactly. as it was. And now that they've added even more to it, it's sort of... I remember that when it brought it back, there was like questions like, is Maria Sharapova 27 or 29? And you, you sort of go... <laughs> who cares this isn't this isn't a celebrity squares type question yeah so it was literally collapsing under its own weight essentially i think another factor is about the international market so half hour formats don't sell all that well so i'm a little bit surprised about what's happened with this is my house i wonder whether actually the because the bbc version doesn't have commercial breaks the 60-minute version was just too scary 
to almost every other buyer because it's just way too long. It's never going to fit into a commercial 42 minutes. Mm. So I wonder whether they've cut it down to sort of 28, 29 minutes on the BBC, which can then grow into a 42, 43 minute show on a commercial channel. But let's not kid ourselves. The reason why I think most shows have crept up in length is to save money. Because the way that shows are commissioned tends to be we have a budget per hour. And so if you sort of go, well, I could either commission two 30-minute shows <laughs> or I could just get this 30-minute show to run really long. Well, it's just a lot It's just a lot cheaper because once you've built the set, once you've cast the show, once you've started shooting it, the difference between shooting a half-hour show and shooting a one-hour show in studio isn't great. Like the, the textbook example of that in the UK is Countdown, the sort of simple letters and numbers mm. game, which in my day when I was a student was a simple sort of 30 minute treat. And then that got extended to 45 minutes. So they, and now it's an hour and then they have to almost play the game fully twice to fit the time. It was, I think, felt like an expensive show for the slot. So the only way for them to keep the show as it was, was to extend the running time. Mm. But then you've got examples with Pointless, for example, where, you know, to a lot of viewers, Pointless is incredibly slow. Mm. Yeah, the pace of it is leisurely at best. But that is the show that it settled at. When the show was picked up in Australia, they tried to do it as a half-hour show. Um, they cut the couples down from four to three, but they had to cut out all the chat almost completely. Now, the Australians were already familiar with the British version because it was running on the same network, and people were absolutely horrified, <laughs> you know, that it was bombing along at the pace that it was because what they wanted was this leisurely chat and interplay and, you know, bad puns and, and all the rest of it. So it's hard to get these things right. I think that's happened twice in France. They've tried to bring it into a 30-minute slot. I've even seen the GSN American version mm -hmm. uh, that had a pilot there. And again, it, it just felt like they were just changing questions far too often and having to skip through things as if it was like watching everything mm. at 1.3 times speed, like some people do when they're listening to, to podcasts. Hopefully not mm. this one. Um, <laughs> but if you go back to the international situation, when you're pitching a format to international buyers, you need to take account of what is or what isn't a popular slot length on their channel. So the more that your show can alter in its length, stretch and squeeze, the more places that you can potentially sell it. So my show, Chef in Your Ear, was originally planned to be a Canadian half hour on the Food Network. But when we played it and we shot it and we tried to edit it, it came in at about 39 minutes. So the Food Network, which is much more flexible, said that's not a problem. We'll call that a short hour, <laughs> which you have in North America, where you put in your commercial breaks, but you also play a 10-minute you know, infomercial right. over, over the hour to pad it out. Um, over time, that show then crept up to a commercial hour properly at about four, between sort of 42 and 47 minutes. But then we started to take it out into uh, other territories. So I think in Korea, it ran at 100 minutes. 
And then when we did it in Spain, it ran for 140 minutes per episode. Two hours 20. Two hours 20 minutes. <laughs> Chef in your ear, the motion picture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. It, is, it is longer than quite a lot of motion pictures, which was extraordinary. Now we had to you know, play effectively three games in one to make that work. But it just... I think it's it's an interesting factor about food. Food and talent shows are probably the two most flexible types of format. I never expected it that, that this would be something that would happen, but it has been interesting to see how you can take a format and if the format is strong enough that it can uh, adapt to not not just the length but also the 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 pacing of the show as well whether you want a lot of singing in it or... I mean, I remember Deal or No Deal in, in a number of countries. I think it was in Turkey, but I do remember the host came on singing and <laughs> all the people holding briefcases joined in the song. And there was probably about seven or eight minutes just of karaoke before anybody said anything. But hey, why not? If that's what people enjoy, that's what people expect, and the show can accommodate it, then then great. The Turkish lira used to be so bad for inflation. When they opened the suitcases, the suitcases must have been like a mile wide. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Chris Goss has a bedtime story for us, as you'll see in his item for our show and tell segment. And joining us once more is TV technology guru, Chris Goss. And I'm wondering, Chris, if the item that you brought is a low-tech or a high-tech item. Well, it's it's a collection of pictures, actually, from a, from a particular show. Okay. We did a show called Million Second Quiz in China, originally an American show. And so the version in China ran, it was a show that ran live for seven days. And it's quite a complex show, and there's two stages, and there's a lot of technology. And um, I went over there and helped set it up, and then we came back for the production. They built this massive set in, in a theme park, actually. And it was an amazing job, very complex, big crew. After a few days there, I noticed that I'd come across people sleeping in the, in, you know, across the seats, on the floor, you know, hidden away. And so I, saw, I started to take pictures of people <laughs> and um, including our own guys actually and there's a dreadful picture of me asleep in a corner somewhere you know because it, it was hard work but there were great pictures of like a security guard asleep with all of us around him and 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 the operators asleep at some point and so anyway we were there for several weeks and at one point i had a production meeting with the producers and um and i and i was saying to the producer i was saying i think you've done an amazing job here in a very short time frame a lot of technology, a lot of things going on. You've put this show together. You know, the set looks amazing. The lighting is fantastic. The production values are great. You know, And the producer said to me, well, thank you very much. But in China, we never sleep. And I go, well, that's not true. <laughs> and then I proceeded to show the pictures of all the people asleep in various places all around the, all around the set. Anyway, they did laugh with me. But, uh, <laughs> that's a great story. Well, that's a very funny story. So thank you very much indeed, Chris, for being on TV Show and Tell. It was a pleasure, and and thank you guys for asking me. 
And now it's time for Fake or Format, our little game at the end of the show, where one of these shows I'm going to describe is real and one of them is fake. So why don't you play along with Justin, see if you can find which one is which. And Justin, everyone's been saying that the UK is now back in the 1970s <laughs> due to there being strikes, high inflation, and Kate Bush is back in the charts. Yep. So I've brought to you two shows from the 1970s. Great. So the first one is called Score with the Scaffold. So the Scaffold were a novelty group from the 1970s who had a hit with a song called Lily the Pink. And notably, one of the members of it was the poet Roger McGough. Really? I didn't know that. Hmm. Yes, he was in that, yes. Might, you, you might be lying, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I might be, yes. So in 1971, they had a children's program called School with a Scaffold, which involved music, games, and various puzzles. For example, there might be various coins with heads and tails in a row, and you had to sort of work out a number of moves to get them all to show heads, or you had to work out what the link was between the words abstemiously and uncomplimentary. And I'll put the answer to that at the end of the show. So that's uh, the first one, Score with the Scaffold. And the next one is from 1973, and this was an early PBS documentary in the States. It's called A Home for Hobos. So 20 homeless people were taken off the streets and placed in a shelter for a month. And then five were randomly assigned to be warders to ensure that the others followed the rules about when the lights go out, not consuming any drugs, looking after yourself and that sort of thing. So yes, this was a lightly disguised version of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Mm -hmm. And furthermore they could periodically choose to vote out members of the shelter who were misbehaving. So some people say that this was actually a very early example of a reality show. So there's your choice. You have Score with the Scaffold or A Home for Hobos. Gosh. Well, I think they both sound extremely entertaining for a start. Um, were you watching television in the 1970s, David? I, I was born in 1973, so I wouldn't have remembered either of these. Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. Mm -hmm. Well, Home for Hobos, I know that we can, we can sometimes be a little bit surprised by the kind of ex social experiment type programming that took place when you go back to things where there was so little control over what was done that actually it can be quite shocking. But PBS is such a conservative type of channel that I'm finding a little bit hard that they would do that. Score with the scaffold, absolutely no idea. Uh, but I think I'm going to go for the reasons I've said with PBS, I'm going to go with score with the scaffold as the format. And you'll be correct. Yeah. So yes, the score with the scaffold was a BBC children's program that had a couple of series However, there was a show called The Experiment, uh, which was about 20 years ago, that was a version of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about the Stanford Prison Experiment was that they, when they ran it, they expected it to run for about two weeks. But then after about the sixth day, the person who was the researcher who was trying to run this experiment from inside suddenly realized that they were going native and they were suddenly becoming a warder rather than trying to keep the experiment on track. <laughs> and so like they sort of went, this is going too far. We've, we've crossed the line here. We're going to stop everything. And so when they tried the experiment on, on television, exactly the same thing happened. Yeah. After six days, 
there was there was all sorts of things that happened in terms of like the the first set of warders had got basically booted out, a new set of warders had been assigned, and and various other things had gone a bit wrong, and then they sort of went actually this is going a bit haywire again. We're going to stop it. Although a lot of the key findings about people going native were not quite as true in that experiment, but nevertheless, they had done something similar, but not until three decades later. Well done, great. And that's our time slot filled for this week. Please do get in touch if you find this show enjoyable and slash or informative. You can email us on contact at tvshowandtell.com or you can send us 280 emoji via our Twitter handle at tvshowpodcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. And the answer to the question about the two words was they contain all five vowels in the right order. The first one forwards and the next one backwards. (laughs) 